Design before ugh. design design. <laughs> design? <laughs> 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 oh. <laughs> oh god! Woo. Let's try that again. <laughs> You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode forty-two. Subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. Visit us at codingblocks.net where you can find show notes, examples, discussion, and much more. Chat us up on codingblocks.slack.com and new slackers can join by heading to www.codingblocks.net slash slack. Follow us on Twitter at codingblocks or head to www.codingblocks.net and find all our social links there at the top of the page. With that, I'm Alan Underwood. I'm Joe Zach. And I'm Michael Outlaw. This episode is sponsored by Infragistics, developer tools and productivity. Design before you build with Indigo Studio. Share and collaborate on designs with indigodesign.com and build high-performance, enterprise-ready desktop and web line of business apps and mobile apps in your platform of choice. WPF, Windows Forms, ASP.NET, HTML5, JavaScript, and iOS, Android, or Xamarin Head over to www.infragistics.com to get your free trial, view sample apps, and to see the tools in action. All right, so uh, now up for our new section, but first we want to talk about our reviews. And uh, this time we decided to let Alan do it, but he's agreed to do it as fast as he can possibly say it. Interesting, that was not part of the deal, but I'm <laughs> cool with that. Interesting. Uh, no take backsies. Right, right. Interestingly enough here, though, we got 11 new reviews in both Stitcher and iTunes. Already too slow. Now, it has been like five months since we recorded an episode, <laughs> so that's pretty awesome. What? But so here we go. Stitcher review. And by the way, there were some fantastic ones in here. Oh, we're going to get to some of these. I mean, just excellent. So here we go. Spectre 013, Chris, Christopher, Genius, Hammer Tag, Joe Recursion Joe. That one's fantastic. <laughs> one of my favorites. Gearhead 2K. Manrique 2K, Mike North, Andrew M, Mild Mannered Calvin, and Free Leaks. Now in iTunes, that was Stitcher. In iTunes, we had Sid Savara, Jay Mayer, Tony Korb, NMKL999, E Schwartz 20, Mocha, Mocha DWI, so drinking and driving with coffee. I don't know. Ben Jammin, Wisco CMO, New Zero Riot, Nate the DBA. And Paulo is Paulo. Yeah, not to be confused. Yes, Paulo is most definitely Paulo. So thank you guys. Seriously, like we read all these. They were fantastic. Some of them made us laugh. Some of them made us well, cry. Well, just the username alone of Joe Recursion Joe <laughs> is worth a laugh. Yeah, but, you know, but he, uh, he do have a correction. Oh, oh, a yeah, correction? it's actually it's not Mocha DWI. It's Mochadwi. Really? No, I don't uh, know. I just made that up. But you, uh, well, you, like, it sounded you're, you're so good. I'm like, was, what are you saying? It's Muchadwi. He was so confident about it. You're like, yeah, okay. Well, I guess he's probably right. right. Yeah, Joe Recursion Joe wrote that we are the only non-boring coding podcast. So I was like, I, I got to like that. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. But listen to this one. This one was awesome. So we, we joked one time. I remember teasing Alan about a comment that he wrote in the code where it was, <laughs> I have no idea how I got here. And I guess someone else thought that that was humorous because they've done things like that too. <laughs> so Genius, which you got to love that name, wrote this awesome comment, okay? And, and there's going to be a quiz for you at the end. The comment is, 
you can try to refactor this function to your heart's content. I know you will try. So when you're done trying and failing, increase this number by one. <laughs> what do you think the current number is? I believe 11. it was 26, right? It was, oh, oh you cheated. No, I remember reading that one. Yes, it was 26. <laughs> 26 times it had already... Everyone had tried to refactor it. That was awesome. That Actually, you know what? I'm stealing that. I'm putting that in our oh, code base somewhere. That is the most beautiful comment I've ever seen. I actually had somebody tell me the other day. They were like, hey, man, I've actually tried to go through and do this. And I was like, yeah, you're about the fifth person that's tried to do that. Because I've mm -hmm. tried to do it and a couple others. And we basically said, we don't have time right now because this is ridiculous. Well, you know, there was another comment in here, too. I wanted, I wanted to comment on. Is that too many comments? Maybe. Um You'd never have too many comments. Yeah, right. Wisco <laughs> CMO he wrote that uh, at, you know that he wished he loved the new Call of Duty game as much as I do, and I kind of wanted to correct him because it's like, well, I don't really know that I love it as much as like the previous version. Like I'm just not feeling like that current version, and so that's why it's like you know you, you end up moving on to other games. Like I feel like Joe wants to insert one right now that starts with yeah, speaking oh. of games. Oh, uh, Overwatch, man. Yes. Overwatch is uh, released on May 24th, <laughs> uh, which means it'll be out by the time we get this podcast out. But um, yeah, I've, I'm prepping my hands right now. I'm stretching. I'm very excited. <laughs> I played the beta. Uh, it's awesome. I love it. I There's a lot it right of excitement now. around that game. Have you checked it out? I have not downloaded it, but it might be the one PC game that I purchase. Right? Oh, I get on PC, man. It's console. You, you don't too. have to get it on oh, PC. Oh, it's on console. As yes, well. yeah. it's on everything. But it's going to look so good on the PC. I uh, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know, but it, it does look pretty fantastic. Now, so. now since we since I did bring up Call of Duty because you know this is a day that ends in Y. Um, <laughs> did, have you seen the new trailer for Call of Duty uh, Infinite Warfare? No. no, I saw its ratings on YouTube. Yeah, that yeah. was sad, right? Were they bad? It's crazy sad. It was horrible. Yeah, like it. the The down votes were. I don't remember. I think at the time that I saw it, it was like. Definitely more than twice the downvotes than upvotes. Oh wow! No, I have I have not looked. I will say though, I have started playing Uncharted Four. Man, it is it is amazing. Well, just one. I know you're tired of Call of Duty, but the one <laughs> last bit of Call of Duty news though is that it'll include. It's supposed to include Modern Warfare Four, or you know the original Modern Warfare, Call of Duty Four, oh, Modern cool. Warfare. Hmm. So. We'll see. They, I mean, they definitely teased some of that, and so it was like, well, what does that exactly mean? I don't know yet, but we'll see. But speaking of other games, though, yes. new in the gaming world. Yeah, big news here. Um, I made a chess game where you can play against yourself. How do you or play chess? What's an that? AI or uh, random moves. Uh, I kind of cobbled together a chess engine and a chess AI and made a little game out of it. It's part of my effort to learn new technologies get to be more comfortable with some javascript concepts and uh, also make games and so you guys should go play it and look at the source code and tell me what it did wrong and uh, also um ping me about it and i will uh, give you an earful about webpack so so tell us what was the stack that you used here because you said the the goal was to learn a bunch of technologies so what was the stack yeah, really. Um, uh, this time I, my focus was uh, on Webpack. I I like Gulp and Grunt a lot, and I think those are really cool ways of doing things. Uh, but I also really like Node's require system, and I always want to use that on the front end. And I heard that Web uh, Webpack could be a nice replacement for that, as well as a whole bunch of other stuff. It's it's actually much much bigger than that. It'll run your web server. It'll do everything. 
Um, and so I really wanted to give a shot because I thought it might be a nice way of kind of short circuiting all that work. But I'm not a big fan of it. Um, there's nothing against the Webpack guys, but uh, it, I hate having to go to Google for everything to figure out like what kind of weird squiggly lines I need to put in place in order to get my pre-processing, pre-processing working. Um, so that was the main thing. But really, I, I also I'm just trying to get really familiar with the Node ecosystem because I do think it's really cool. I think um, the whole kind of JavaScripty workflow is neat. Um, even though I'm not a big fan of the language, it's is very convenient to use and it's easy to build a you know send someone a link to a web page and say hey check out this thing I wrote. What was the uh, front end that you used? Did you uh, just HTML? Oh, okay. So it was just raw HTML. Okay. Yeah, oh, and Bootstrap. I use Bootstrap for everything. That's like step number one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Totally agree. And that's probably right. how you, I you got didn't want to handwrite your foot. CSS. Uh, I couldn't figure out how to test it, man. Like, I really wanted to be able to test stuff outside the DOM. Like, I want to write unit tests, real unit tests, no IDs, no browsers. But, man, I had a hard time getting it going. Uh, and that may be because I don't know what I'm doing. But uh, I really do feel like it's just not set up for that. Most of the articles I looked for really wanted you to have um, some sort of phantom browser thing going on. So if you know a better way, then you should definitely look at my code and teach me how to do it because I will love you. <laughs> Awesome. Well, hey, and by the way, I did play it. Like I, I played. The oh game, yeah, and I played it on my phone, and it worked rather well. I mean, did you win? Uh, I did. Well, so Good. I, I would have if I hadn't like just shut it down. I, I basically had. Oh, he, he had one king and nothing right. else, and and I just didn't feel like messing with you know cornering him. It's but, not a deadlock. What's it called? Um. Stalemate. Stalemate, thank stalemate. you. Stalemate. Well, I could have locked them down. Which like, means that you lost. You didn't no, win. I didn't lose. I just, I turned it in off. In a stalemate, you both lose. No, I wasn't going to, I wasn't in a stalemate. I didn't feel like chasing them down into a corner. So mm-hmm. I just, I, I basically stopped. Oh, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. So, um, but yeah. yeah, it was fun. I actually, um, there was a, a, a bug. It's not really a bug. There was a problem between the um, the chess engine that I used and chess AI that I used because I did not write this from scratch. I basically just cobbled together some things, which is the JavaScript way now. <laughs> um, so in, in that spirit, I just kind of cobbled these things together and they weren't really speaking the same algebraic notation, which is a whole nother earful I can give you on the worst possible format for data imaginable. It, algebraic no- notation is just terrible. It's It's even hard for humans. I don't understand why how that evolved uh, it's the, it's the worst but anyway there was sort of a bug um, communicating that between the two different uh, libraries and so they would kind of get off and i'd have to start making random moves so <laughs> when you like the first couple of weeks you play the game uh, I, I think when i sent the link out to you guys uh if at any point it kind of got out of sync it would just start making random moves but now it's actually much better because i kind of worked out some of that wonkiness oh cool so did you do the adapter pattern <laughs> uh no i really should have though because i totally totally hacked it in there um i had a problem with that and you know how node when you require something it'll only require it once and kind of cache it yeah well the chess ai uh it, it does that right so it comes in its cache but it's one of those um I, I don't, i'm sure there's a, a word for it but it's basically an iffy right so it's a um it's a single function it shares its state so you can't have two of these chess ais in different scopes Ah. It's got its own internal state, so you can't, you know, kind of tag stuff onto it, kind of keep track of its own state. You can't, you know, basically inherit from it and, and move on. Everything you do is shared. So I couldn't have two chess AI objects. It was always one. Hmm. Well, I'm doing a terrible job of, of explaining it. No, that makes sense. Well, I was thinking of the Memento pattern, though, because that was the one that we had talked about for gaming purposes, right? 
for uh, being able to like get back to a state. Yeah, that was the revert. I was thinking the adapter because he said he had two different libraries, and so he was having mm. to communicate oh, yeah. changes between the two. But yeah, or the facade pattern. Yeah, could do that. Yeah, well. I could have done this in a lot of good ways. Yeah, <laughs> well, facade pattern was specifically the one that we talked about for you know if you if you wanted to wrap some API and you know make its uh, functionality a little bit easier for your usage. You know, you could. Just I think wrap the only uh, design pattern I really rigidly used was strategy. So the, the chess AI, the human player, and the um, the random moves were all different strategies, and would select which strategies would use, and they all um, implemented a common interface. Although I was doing pure JavaScript, not TypeScript, so the, you know there there is no real interface. So I just kind of named the functions the same. Well, okay, yeah, I mean that's that's kind of the same though. Yeah. So I know. Okay, so last episode we did a deep dive into my mind, which was crazy. And I know that we aren't doing that this episode, but I got a couple, like, like I told you last time, you know, I had a whole bunch more questions that we didn't even get to, but I have a couple that are, that could kind of tag along with what, you know, with, with Joe's experience here that, uh, you know, let's see where you guys fall in on this. So, well, this one, maybe the first was more of a statement, but if you have to pound important your CSS, yeah. That's it's a code wrong. smell. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a code smell, right? Yep. Okay. At least I'm not the only one that feels that way. But yeah. Joe, is that what you did for all your stuff? Did you pound important? No, um I or, actually did a I, pretty I said pound decent important. job. I meant bang important, sorry. <laughs> um bang nice. Um uh, no, I uh, I pretty much did the CSS like somewhat correctly, I think. Um, <laughs> I mean, I used colons and stuff and I think I used the right arrow. Uh, at one point, <laughs> the right arrow—that's direct descendant, right, oh. or something like that. I can't. I can't. Um, you know, I—I I, I don't know. At the time, it seemed to make sense. Okay. I, I like that he was first. He says, "I think," and then he says, "No, I did it right. I used colons and stuff." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which you could also use with the bang important. Right. So, yeah. No. No importance. Uh, no. I actually like. I think I did a decent job with CSS. It's even like somewhat organized, and there was a lot of custom CSS. You know, I had to do the board. I had to do all the pieces, all that stuff. Um, oh, I even got fancy with the borders. I did a dash border. You did. Yeah. 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 It turned yeah, out. Yeah, I know. Nice. I know things. <laughs> I know things. <laughs> You should put that on your resume. Uh, that's right. That's awesome. I know things. So what was your second question? All right. So I'm I'm watching this. Uh, I've, I've been making my way through this Pluralsight course uh, from Kyle Simpson. We, we've talked about him before. He has the series of books um, on GitHub that are named in the scheme of um, something like you don't know JavaScript and then fill in the blank. Right. You don't know JavaScript closures. You don't know JavaScript asynchronous, whatever, you know. Um, but he's got this this plural site, mini plural site course. But there was at least the one that I was going through. And, um, you know, he brought up this question of, do you name your iffies? Do you name your iffies? Do you name Wouldn't your iffies? Not be iffies if you named it? No, it could still be named. So so let's he stands for so so an immediately invoked function. So so let's say let's be clear like an an immediate um, an iffy or an immediately invoked function execution in JavaScript is a function declaration 
that is inside of a parentheses and then immediately after it has uh, two more parentheses to call it. Right? Yep. Okay. So a lot of times for an iffy, you know, you might just be in the habit of saying function, open print, close print, curly brace, and then start writing whatever you wanted to do. And then by the time you're done, you know, wrap that with the the final two uh, open and close parentheses to call, to you know call it. Like I said, it, it'll be a function declaration inside of parentheses that are then called um, yeah, that, that that's in immediately executed because there's two more behind uh, an opening and closing curly brace behind not curly brace opening closing parentheses behind it. Now the question is, do you do the function? open parentheses, close parentheses, curly brace deck style for your iffies? Or do you name the iffy by saying function, some method name, open parentheses, close parentheses, curly brace, open curly brace, blah, 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 blah. I usually do not name it because the whole point of the iffy usually is to not junk up your global namespace. And if you give it a function name or anything like that, that's exactly what you're doing. You're putting it in the window scope, right? So... I typically, uh, depending on whether now, it's isn't Node that or happening anyways, Alan? Not really, because you can't get back to that. Fu- if you if you right. literally or, just okay, if you let's just, just say that it's happening function. anyways, but and move on. You're one in one case. Uh, you're just saying you don't name it though, so you can't get back to it. So right? so you're po- you, so by not naming it yourself, you're reducing the risk of clobbering some other name because you didn't bother to name right, it. Right. Okay. That's but, the, that's the real purpose of them in the first place. Well, that's not the purpose of the iffy. That that's your argument for why you don't name it. Now, Joe, what's your take? Um, my take is that yeah, I don't like clobbering the name, and I also don't like singletons. And that was the, what I should have said about the uh, re- the requires problem I was having. The chess AI is a singleton, so I couldn't have two of them with their own state. Mm. So I had to hack around it. So yeah, um, yeah. Well, I mean, for one, iffies are a great way to um, uh, they they are a way to hide your namespace <clears throat> so so to your point about clobbering the global namespace you know some uh packages actually use iffies as a way to to hide that right now kyle made the great point and now i'm totally convinced i was like oh that's an amazing idea i never thought of it like that and he made the point that if you don't name your iffies you should if for no other reason then when you're looking at your JavaScript console and you see like some error happened, you don't have to see that dreaded anonymous method, you know, list in, in the Chrome developer console. Instead, you'll actually have a named reference that you can go back to and go, Oh, that's where it died. Yeah, I could see that. And I was like, that is such a simple, you know, bit of advice. And yet (laughs) it's so valuable. I like it. I don't love it, but I do like it. Yeah. We should just just make sure you prefix the name with something nobody would ever use, like iffy. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> You're totally safe. Done. Yeah. Hey, uh, also wanted to mention, uh, I, I, or I forgot to mention that uh, I was on the Hello Tech Pros podcast talking about productivity. So after you get done laughing about that, you should go listen to me talk about uh, all the books that I've read and uh, haven't put into practice. <laughs> Actually, that was a pretty good episode. I listened to it. Um, there was a lot of good information dropped in there. Uh, Word. A, another thing I wanted to do because we do only record, you know, every few weeks or whatever, and probably the biggest complaint we get from most of our our listeners is, you know, hey, we want more. 
there is a great podcast out there called Software Engineering Radio. And I listened to one recently that was about unit tests and how to effectively do unit testing, which I feel like a lot of people sort of miss the boat on. Like we, you hear a lot about, oh, you need a hundred percent coverage. Well, who really cares about testing? You know, just very generic getters and setters. Like to me, that's Man, a waste 100% of time. Percent coverage. That that seems like a complete waste of time to me. So the episode, it was episode two fifty six. We'll have a link in the show notes. Uh, I really liked it. He was talking about he he even went into things such as, you know, you create your test to create your functionality. Right. And to make sure it works. If at some point that's really not a core piece of your of your software, like it's not it's like the 80 20 rule, right? Like if 80% of what is your core business, if it's not part of that and it starts, you start just kind of getting longer and longer running unit tests then it might be time to go clean out some of those old ones. So I, I thought it was kind of cool taking the perspective of instead of trying to test absolutely everything, even the things that get touched less than 1% of the time, test the things that are important because that's actually what you want to focus on and you want to encourage people to run those unit tests. So um, it was an interesting show. I really enjoyed it. So definitely go check that one out. Did they really say, though, like a hundred percent test coverage. Uh, so like there's, there's some people out there that say that, you know, their goal is to hit a hundred percent test coverage and you know, I mean, yeah. All right. I, I've never seen it happen first off, but I don't think it can. Like, that's why I'm like kind of baffled because I always thought that the golden rule was that if you can get in the upper eighties or low nineties, then you're, you're in a really good state. Yeah. Right? I mean, I guess the point is, is like literally to get a hundred percent coverage, you'd have to test your getters and setters, which typically are doing nothing more than setting like a private variable well, in a lot of cases. And that's, that's kind of ridiculous. I mean, that's if you have getters and setters exposed. Yeah, maybe. Like, well, like in Java you do, right? In Java, you don't um, have like auto property type stuff. Yeah. Cause they're methods. Yep. Sure. But I guess where I'm thinking like, like for the first time ever, I had a library that I worked on recently and I got it to 99% test coverage and I thought that was like insanely unheard of and and I couldn't believe that I had I had managed to get that high test coverage. But you know what's awesome about that? This is this goes back to cuz we were working together on this library that you're talking about. There was a case that came up and you're like, "Man, I can't believe I didn't think of that edge well, case, right?" Well, that's and, the thing is it like unit tests do not ensure. Th- they don't you know, protect you. Right. They just help you. Right. Right. The, you know, they're, they're a tool that allow you so that when you do make a future change, you can ensure that you didn't break something, but they're not going to make sure that every possible scenario works unless you, you know, cause you're not gonna be able to include every possible scenario. You try as best as you could. And even with 99% test coverage, that does not mean that there's not a use case or bug in the system. It just means that You've ran through because really, and this is the this is the reason why I take issue with 100% test coverage because all the coverage is doing is telling you that's the percentage of of every single path Method. in the code, right? Right. What percentage of it has has um, gone through and which percentage hasn't? And depending on the tool that you're using to measure the coverage, right? Sometimes if a method, let's say you test a method that throws an exception, right? Mm-hmm. Some coverage tools will not count the curly brace after the exception is thrown. And so therefore you can never count reach that line. You can't ever reach it. And so you can never count that line as being tested and covered. And so that's the difference between coverage and 
in actual like what the test produced. Well, to be clear, they didn't say that they were trying to hit 100%. They said Well, yeah, that's people, why I was asking yeah, for clarification. Yeah, yeah. No, they were basically saying, you know, some people will try and strive to reach that. That's impossible. And and what he was saying is even if it wasn't impossible, that's not really that's not valuable use of your time, right? Like you should test things that matter a lot. And so that was kind of interesting, but that's the other thing I wanted to bring up though, was the cool part was like that one edge case. And it was a super edge case that we found after that, you know, unit tests are a tool. They're not a, a silver bullet, which a lot of people seem to think they are. They're another tool in ensuring that you have good code. So, um, I mean, the most valuable thing about unit tests is when you go into a project and you make some change, you can run all the existing unit tests and know that I didn't break anything. Right. So at the very minimum, we're, we're you know, it works no the worse same than way we were. It did. Right. 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 Yeah. So, yeah, at any rate. Yeah. I'm surprised Joe doesn't have something to say about unit testing since, like, this is also one of his favorite topics. I was just looking at my 98% at ColorMine. Really? Good. Right. Yeah. And okay. I still, I probably get one email a month of somebody telling me that it's horribly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? The impressive thing, like ColorMind's not a small project by any means. Uh, it's all math though. So it's like the easiest thing in the world to unit test. Okay, fair mm-hmm. enough. Yeah, you just assert things that equal what you expect them to be. Yep. And I try to keep the functions all really small so I could do that. And in fact, um, if I remember correctly, that 2% that I couldn't get tested... It was all things where basically uh, the inputs would never be, say, below zero or whatever. And so, like, they were literally things that couldn't happen, but I still had to check in place just because, um, you know, I, I'm like that. <laughs> like, I'm definitely that, uh, you know, you see that common code. It's like, this should never happen. That, that is totally me. That, you know, we, we all have our things. <laughs> so. Yeah, if I see an error that can be thrown or <laughs> I, I just can't leave it. But that's okay because most of the time I don't see them, so... Yeah, no biggie. That's awesome. All right. Well, what say you we get into the show? Let's do it. So, um, I think I already hinted at what this show is about. So, we're going to be talking about design patterns again. And this will be our fifth episode into the design patterns series. And I think Joe is wrong here because he wrote July 2015 as the last time we talked about design patterns, and that can't be. Episode 30. Yep. What? Isn't crazy. that crazy? It doesn't seem like it's been that long. I blame the 12-factor app. Yeah, that was four episodes. So. <laughs> I blame that we only record once a month. <laughs> that, yeah. That's part of it. Because this is 12 episodes later. Yeah. Now, do you guys have a favorite of the, uh, what is it, Singleton that we talked about? Singleton. Singleton. That's my least favorite, yes. <laughs> yeah, I actually think episode 11. The factories, the method, the factory methods, the builder, the prototype. Those were some of my favorites. Yeah, I, um, I, I think the strategy um, strategy and template methods are still the ones that I do the most. Hmm. And observers so like, is a really cool pattern, but like, I, it seems like a lot of the problems that I have in programming are around <laughs> eventing and that sort of thing. So uh, I, I can't really claim to like it too much. Hmm. Well, then prepare yourself, because tonight we're going to discuss the command, repository, and mediator patterns. I'm kind of excited about this one. Yeah. Who's going to win? Um, well, it's <laughs> obviously me. I, you know. <laughs> I'm not as command. happy about mine that I picked to talk about, so it sounds like Alan is super happy about the one he picked, so I feel like that means he's going to win. I don't know. You yeah, like- but... Uh, 
Go ahead. I don't know. Man. I feel pretty good about mine, and I'll explain why when we get to it. Very cool. All right. Well, let's start with the command pattern. Well, are we doing the survey first? No, no, no. We'll hold off on the survey. All right. All right. So, Joe, kick us off. All right. So, uh, yeah, the command pattern is the pattern that I picked. It's it's one that I like a lot, and I do pretty often. And if you work with uh, any sort of framework, you're probably doing some sort of variant of it. But um, the reason I wanted to really kind of look at it is that, at least I think, it's one of the hardest to read. Um, not necessarily the code, but just trying to read a description of what this command pattern does is just brutal. I man, I went to so many websites. I looked in a couple of books that I had, and all of them were like, well, the command is command that the invoker invokes when the requester requests the invoke. Oh. <laughs> like, what? Yeah, I mean, that sounds like instructions by Dr. Seuss. Yeah, it, it was really awful. And I almost like you know, got a bunch of sentences and kind of aggregated them together, but then I realized how horrible and frustrating that would be to listen to. So I decided to spare you guys. But um, yeah, I did want to kind of read the just the the formal by the book gang for um, definition first, and it's terrible. And I apologize. And we're going to try and give some examples that make it um, make you realize just how you've already been doing this. But the official definition is that the command pattern encapsulates a request as an object, thereby letting you parameterize clients with different requests. Queue or log requests and support undo. Z. Got it? Yeah, that didn't. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. So, um, in in your code, and a very like you know typey typey layer, it's the difference between saying, you know, method parentheses or new object, and somewhere later on the line you say, my object dot invoke or execute. Or do your thing. Or method parentheses. And this has some really nice advantages. Like, uh, as we mentioned in the definition, you can queue these requests. Because what we've done is we've, as the definition says, we've encapsulated as a request as an object. So we've got a code, like object-oriented object, an instance that represents a task that needs to be done. And so when we All start right, saying so wait words like, wait a minute, yep, go ahead. you're losing me here. Cause when you talk about like, when you say, especially when you just said task, I couldn't help but think of like the task, uh, you know, objects within .NET, for example, right? Boom. Command pattern. Oh, really? I was going to say that's not what you meant, but that is what you meant. That is what I meant. And also actions in .NET, okay. um, you know, act, okay. like actions and funks. Those are also pretty good examples of command patterns. You know, it's they're all little, you know, varied here and there, pros and cons, uh, tweaked a bit for their specific tasks. But yeah, that's basically it. Like, you know, the task in .NET, you create an object that does a thing, and then you don't you don't start executing. You know, it's not procedural, right? As soon as you create the task, it doesn't run off and do it. You create okay. the task, and then so you say, async programming then is a really good way to visualize what the command pattern does. Then, right? Yep. Like a promise might be another example in JavaScript then. Yeah, absolutely. Now that one's um, starting to dip out a little bit because there's not there's not an object behind that, right? It's an anonymous function. So the net, you know, we, we have to gray up our definition a little bit if we're going to accept that. Okay, well, I, I was just trying to think of ways to like visualize, like if you're listening to this description, right? Like how can you visualize? Because at first I was getting kind of lost with some of the things that you were saying and and then... Yeah, but now it's starting to come back together. Yeah, and um, also, you know, if you think of like classic ASP pages or, or um, if you've done any Windows development, you'll have a button 
and then you'll have a method called like button on click and you can attach event to, events to it and whatnot. And those are all examples of the command pattern. These are things where we've got, um, you know, an action that's separated from the thing that happens. Does that feel good? Yeah, I'm still taking all that in. Yeah, I thought so. So um, <laughs> I think the easiest way to describe this is really through examples. So um, I've got a, a list here of real-world applications when you've done this. And the first thing we've kind of mentioned a little bit with the ASP example, but um, GUIs, graphical user interfaces and menus, things like that. My favorite example is Photoshop. Photoshop has commands like copy, paste, um, invert colors, flip horizontally, right? Well, and going back to your ability to support undo, specifically as it relates to the Photoshop example, you can see your history of commands and actually like step back through them in Photoshop, yep. right? And the way that uh, the undo works so well is because you've centralized that logic. And so you've got, you know, basically one kind of, um, I forget what they call it, uh, you know, I don't even want to say what they call it because it's horrible, but not that I have anything better to call it. But you basically got one coordinator that is responsible for kind of kicking these things off. And each thing is its own separate class. So you're going to have a copy class. You're going to have a paste class. And that copy class knows how to get something uh, from the the view and copy it to the clipboard. Paste knows how to get out of the clipboard and put it back. When, and then when you implement... The, uh, and that would be um, in the, we'll call it the execute method. So you say copy command.execute. It grabs a thing from the view, throws it into the clipboard. The undo would be the opposite, right? It takes it out of the clipboard and it puts it back in the view. So I guess what's tripping me up though is like, well, for one, you know, some of your examples, you, you know, you were talking about have kind of like stepped on some things that I was going to say as examples in my own. But then, <laughs> um, bless you. And, um, but then, oh shoot. Well, I just forgot what you said. Um, oh, it was about the state though. And the ability to undo, I felt like there was another one like, um, the, well, actually the memento pattern because about dealing with state, because the command pattern is only allowing you, um, like all the information to, to perform an action is included. It like is encapsulated in that command. Right. Um, but yep. nothing about state is. And that's what the memento pattern buys you is the state, if I remember correctly. Yeah, the men memento actually keeps the whole state of the whatever's being changed in case it needs to, say, roll back or something. So it's a difference between a rollback and like a true undo. Right, because this is different objects, right? So the the whole point of this command thing, though, so what you're talking about is you have something that keeps track of its state over time. This could be any number of different objects, but the whole point is that whole object is is the parameter that's passed in, and then that way you could add it onto a stack or some sort of queue or well, anything like that. So you could always go back, and it's not necessarily. Well, I guess state. what I'm saying is the command though is just like here's the action I want you to do, but it has nothing to do with the state. But yet one of the things that in the definition, I think it was part of the definition that Joe read or, or you mentioned was that you know, part of its thing is to support undo. But I guess my point that I'm making is that the command pattern by itself doesn't support undo. You need something else with it, like a memento pattern, right? 
in order to support that feature because the command pattern itself isn't enforcing the state the 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 ability to like walk backwards in the state it's just like here's the actions to perform right well here's the deal the command pattern doesn't have a state right so like an example in the, with the photoshop thing with the memento is you would say you know cut copy paste whatever it would actually keep a snapshot of the entire state meaning it would keep the view it would also keep a snapshot of what's in your clipboard, maybe right. even what's on disk. You know, it's a snapshot of the entire I guess environment. What, I guess what I was taking issue there was more of the definition that that you gave, where it was like you know supporting undo, because that's where I feel like that feel that felt more like a memento thing than a command pattern thing. Yeah, and right? I guess I should say that um, when I say it supports undo, I literally mean it makes undos easier. It doesn't actually give you that for free. It's right. nothing that um, you know that you get inherently because of the pattern. It's just probably the most common way of doing undos. Okay. Which is to literally say, I have an object that has like an execute method and an undo method. And the undo method knows how to do exactly the opposite of the execute. But that's up to me to program that correctly. And if you've ever undone too fast in Visual Studio, you know that it doesn't always work perfectly when you try to step it back forward. But then you also mentioned that it was like the observer pattern, um, and specifically, you know, you gave the option of the buttons, though. But that yep. was an, another one. Well, uh, no, you said that it it was not not like the observer pattern. You said that it it was uh, you know you used buttons as an example of illustrating the command pattern. But um, one of the patterns I thought that was more like was the observer pattern. They're very similar. Um, they're both behavioral patterns, and the observer pattern is really good at, like, say, you know, pub sub type stuff. Like, let me attach this event to this button. And you're you're right; it's absolutely uh, kind of a competitor to the command pattern, and it would probably you use a little bit of both in whatever you're doing. But they're very much in the same neighborhood. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Yep. And um, because of the kind of levels of abstraction uh, in place here, it actually makes it really easy to remap things in, in such a way that you would also do with the observer. It's like if you're playing a video game and you've got a, a, you know, a controller with four buttons on it um, and you hit the B button, for example, you don't want to say, you know, if B, then jump. You want to be able to say, if B, do the B thing. Right. That you've configured and it's maybe different for scope. So if you're looking at a menu, maybe B selects. If you're playing the game, maybe B jumps. If you're driving a car, maybe B accelerates. So it um, it provides some layers of abstraction that make that thing easy, and it makes it just easy to kind of configure that stuff. And so we're getting that stuff out of code and making it more declarative. So like what you were saying, though, is, I, I mean, just to kind of draw it out a little bit more clearly for a podcast. So like what you were saying, if B, you wouldn't say if B, then jump, because that's very much tied to whatever it is. You're just saying, hey, Whatever came in, call b.execute or b.invoke. And then, yep. and so if b happened to be something that was going to be a jump, when you call execute, it would do the jump because it would know about it itself. If you hit c, you're not going to say c.accelerate. You're going to say c.execute or c.invoke, whatever that method is, and then it will know that it needs to accelerate. So the whole the whole idea is whatever object is passed in will have the same execute command and then it knows what to do with itself at that point. Yeah, and that only works because we've got a common interface between those commands. It's always got to be like invoke no parentheses or a, a, some sort of minimum of parentheses, and it's got to be something that is um, interchangeable. You meant no parameters, right? Uh, yes. Okay, not no parentheses. 
Oh yeah, sorry. Right. <laughs> right. It's yeah, almost so like I was trying to th- like as as you were describing that, Alan. I was thinking of like uh, you know, I don't know something about what you said. Maybe just think like, hey, does that mean that every keystroke could be a command pattern? Totally. I mean, right? it really could, depending on the application, right? Well, depending on the context of what you're doing within an application, yep. maybe you're typing it, or maybe it's a command. Yeah, totally. I mean, hmm. it, it's a it's a pretty neat thing if you think about it. I mean, I don't know how IDEs do it. I've never actually tried to program anything for an IDE. But you could think if you had shortcuts, right, to where if you did a shortcut, it would know what to do itself, right? It could just be an object that has this execute method and then knows to go off and do something. I don't know if that's how it happens, but... Not normally, right? right. I mean, I like, think so. like, regardless, I mean, normally you have, like, an event loop and, and you're listening for, right. you know, the event, but... I, but yeah. in a game, it would totally make sense. Like what, what Joe's saying, in a game, it's really easy because you're kind of boxed in, right? And, and you know that you you'd still have a, like a, some kind of a run loop, though, right? Listening for the events. I mean, it's not that I've done a lot of game development, but, you know. Maybe you could, but maybe the, instead of the event just taking in a key, it takes in an object, right? Like a command object, and then that thing doesn't execute whenever that happens. So, I don't know. But yeah, here's a good example. Right, like you're in Windows or probably anywhere, you right click on something if you have uh, two mouse buttons, and you see a window a window pop down that lets you open it or do this, do that. Right, probably if you've been on, on that computer for any um, amount of time, you've got some stuff installed that can do some special actions like back this file up or you know unzip or whatever, and all of those things are examples of uh, commands because your you know Windows Explorer doesn't know what carbonite needs to do to back up a property it doesn't know what winzip needs to do it just knows hey whatever you pop in here i'm going to give you a file or a list of files and tell you to do it and you know whatever happens afterwards i'm out of it you know that's a good point i wonder uh like on android one of the things i love about android personally is if you're in an app and there are shared features of other apps like what you're talking about right there like if you go to uh share something from you know, maybe your photo, and it gives you a whole list of things that you can share to. When you click that, that thing knows what it needs to do. So I wouldn't be surprised if that is some sort of type of command pattern, right? Like if you click on Hangouts, it knows that it's going to pop it up and and drop it into Hangouts. Whereas if you did Dropbox, it's going to know that it needs to run some other method. So it's probably calling like an execute type thing on each one of those. That that makes sense. Uh, Yeah, and if you think about Slack bots, those are really popular right now if you want to make one. Basically, they give you some sort of interface that you need to to pop in there. So if you're writing a slap bot that um, pastes the picture when you uh, type a command, then um, your input is going to be that command that's typed maybe whatever arguments afterwards. But you, it's up to you to take that um, that information in a you know a reliable format and do something with it. So the uh, the command line doesn't know the specifics of your class of your library what you're doing. All it knows is Hey, I give this guy this word, and I'm out. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty cool. Uh, With that, going back to your undo thing, it not being a feature. So this code samples I've seen that that go along with what you're talking about is if you were to do like an execute on like a copy and paste or, 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 you know, maybe some other feature, the whole undo thing is really because it is just an object coming in, that has the interface that you're talking about, like execute, right? Like that's really the only thing. The cool part is really the reason why it enables something like an undo or a redo is because because it is an, an object that it can see. 
all you do is just keep adding it to a list, right? And then yep. that way, if you want to undo, you can just go back through your list and, and take care of it because they're all of a certain command <laughs> type, and that's why it makes it easier. Well, that's where that's where I take issue with it, though, because so. because that's where the memento pattern will come in. Because let's say let's say I give you a command that's that's um, add to, whatever your current state is, add to, okay. and then I give you that command three times, right? Like it's not you, you know you, you okay fine you have that command add to, but you're not going to know like. Oh well, just flip it to a subtract. You know, let me just subtract two. Instead, you're going to roll through your your state and go. Okay, well, you want to roll back x number of commands. Then that's this is the state at that command, right? Yeah, I think that's a good good way to um, exemplify the difference, right? The command pattern you would say add to, add to, add to, undo. It would subtract two, subtract two, subtract two. With the memento pattern, you would do add to, add to, add to, undo. It would say last result was four. And you do undo again and say last result was two. It would be totally ignorant of the you know operations that took it to get there, and that would probably be actually a, a superior pattern for a calculator. But it just accomplishes the same thing in a different way. Yeah, the memento pattern is the state of an object. With the command pattern, you have many right. objects that don't necessarily. But they're not have a state, state, though. Right, that's what I'm saying. That's why they're just a, command. They're just things to do, and that's objects. what I'm saying. Like, you're not necessarily going to know the the opposite of them just because of the command. No, What's right, the, right, you know, right. If I say if I say like open this file or open this link, you don't know like okay, well undo that. Well, does that mean close the browser? Does that right. mean close the tab? Like you know, what's the opposite of open the link? Right, well, you wouldn't really necessarily have that in a memento either. Not you wouldn't be able to reverse it, right? But you could go back to the previous state. So well, like that's the, what memento would be. Memento would be going back to the previous state, right, right? So the command would literally be popping them off the stack. Essentially, is what it boils down to. You wouldn't. You probably like you said. Well, you where I could see like here, here's here's an interesting use case for the the command pattern that I could see. And tell me if you thought about this one, Joe. But I know we've talked about this feature in Visual Studio. Where if you're debugging something in Visual Studio, right, and you're you know just F10ing your way along it, right, stepping over lines, and there's that little yellow arrow off on the left, and you're like, oh crap, I wanted to go back up and see this from this method from the beginning. You can just drag that little arrow all the way back up and then start redoing it, right? Yeah, that's ridiculous. But no, but I'm thinking about like you know in terms of like, well, what does that mean in terms of like mediator? If we're making the comparison back to mediator. Uh, not mediator, memento um, and command pattern, right? I don't know how that. I, I mean, I'm not. I'm not mm. saying that's exactly how they implemented it, but I'm just kind of like visualizing that, right? Is like, you know, the the you have all these commands. If each one of those lines of code is a command, right? That as you're stepping over your code in the debugger, right, and then you step back, right? That that those list of commands are allowing because you have each of those list of commands, you can go back, right? Again, this is a visual, uh, you know, analogy, not an actual implementation analogy. Yeah, I think that probably would be the case um, that they would use uh, commands here um, rather than memento or any other way of doing it. And I would imagine it is the kind of thing exactly where they kind of step it back, and um, you know the the operation knows knows what it needs to to step it back. Which is in most cases for the debugger, I would think it would just be resetting variables because you know we can't undo network calls or file systems stuff like that. Right. So literally, you're just kind of going back in time for the state of those variables and any sort of network operations, whatever, you're just going to get replayed. Well, I feel like we beat up the command pattern. 
Yeah. Well, I did want to talk about um, one more thing. Sure. Um, well, I, I wanted to talk about how it was. Are really you going Steve Jobs this thing with like one more thing? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, oh, I could talk about um, this and poorly for a long time. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but I did want to talk about the buy the book um, definition. And I encourage everyone to go out there and actually try to program this one by the book because it's really confusing. But I think it's informative also. Uh, and so after I did it, I was like, you know what, there, there's got to be a better explanation of how to, how, how this is supposed to work. There's basically four objects, kind of five of you kind of interface depending on your language and they're terribly named. Right. And I, yeah, it's just tough, but you should look at it anyway. But I did find one great example on dofactory.com, which has an interesting looking book on design patterns. I haven't read, but you should check it out anyway. And um, what it did is it compared these four different objects to um, roles in a, a restaurant scenario. And so I wanted to go over that really quickly. And just to give you a, a glimpse of, what, of how the book describes them, we've got a client, a receiver, a command, an invoker. And rather than trying to tell you what each one of those does in like the, you know, the Cody sense, I'd rather compare it to a restaurant. Okay. So in this case, the client is the customer. You walk into a restaurant, you want to get some food. Right? Okay. A waiter comes up to your table. That's the receiver. Asks you what you would like. They're responsible for creating that ticket or that order, adding all the items that you want, and then taking them back to the cook. Now, the, the client, the customer doesn't know where the chicken came from. It doesn't know if it's, you know, fried or grilled or, you know, maybe they do. Microwaved. Um, right. They don't know the order of operations that it takes to, to make that food. Neither does the waiter. The waiter just knows how to communicate with the cook via this order. And that order is really the key here. It's what represents the command. It's a data representation of what needs to happen. And so when the cook sees fried chicken, he he knows to go to you know, get the chicken, batter it, drop it in the fryer, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Do you like that analogy? Okay. So the order that as the waiter takes down the order, if you hope he writes it down, then that is the command object. Right. All right. I like that analogy. I can, I can follow that. Yep. Well, thank you, Joe. I'm now hungry. So if we can take a break for dinner time, (laughs) <laughs> we'll be back <laughs> no nah, i'm just kidding hey wait a second i'm curious though because i looked on on do factory and it's not that example you were talking about so did you make up the uh the the i definitely did not um let me see here do factory did you look on dofactory.com or the actual link i had the there? link that you had it may have been elsewhere on the site yeah yeah all right so Way to call him out, though, Alan. No, wow. I, I mean, I was trying to follow along, and I was like, man, I'm totally missing the boat. That's why I was Oh, yeah, I think that that was not dofactory.com. Let me see here. Yeah, I, that, I was literally trying to follow along, and I was like, I do not see a waiter. Man, Joe, your show nuts suck. <laughs> I know. I shouldn't have picked a, uh, one that was so hard to describe. Because <laughs> as I was reading, I was like, this is the pattern that everyone does all the time, and no one can explain. No, I think we got around to why. it. I think it makes sense now. Yeah. No, I think it was a really good explanation. Yeah. This episode is sponsored by Dev Bootcamp. Thinking about becoming a software developer? Check out Dev Bootcamp, 
the original short-term immersive software development program that transforms those new to coding into job-ready, full-stack web developers. Learn front- and back-end web development, teamwork, and leadership skills in a rigorous and inclusive environment. Dev Bootcamp has several locations around the country and is accepting applications now. Visit devbootcamp.com slash codingblocks to learn more. All right. So now let's get into one of my favorite parts of the show, which is the survey. So now please tell me you guys didn't cheat because you guys especially, oh, it's 26. (laughs) (laughs) That's not cheating. I read those reviews like weeks ago. All right. So I'm still going to say it was cheating. All right. So our poll last, uh, I would say week, but really, I mean, episode was on uh, Bash on Windows, right? Do you remember this one? Bash on Windows. It's coming, right? And your choices were the next big awesome or much ado about nothing because they were both written as questions. Yeah, you could definitely tell I uh, came up with those labels. So, let, I'll start. I'll start with actually. I think I started with Alan last time, so I'm going to start with Joe this time. Joe, give me a number. Which one you think was the the winner, and what number percent you think it was? Uh, I think that programmers are inherently. Uh, let's go pessimistic. And I'm going to say the next big nothing with uh, 37%. <laughs> you, you combined them. So wait a minute. You're Did saying, I? you're saying you think much ado about nothing was the, the winner between the two options and it won by 37%. Yep. But that means that the other one, according you, to your math, got 63%. No, I think you meant two. Six, yeah. I think you meant 63% was the other one. So, oh, there were only two options. I thought there were There three. was only two options, so <laughs> Oh, okay. So our math is not good. So so which one so okay, so you think much to do about nothing was the winner, but by like how far of a margin? Um not a huge one. So I'll say fifty five percent in that case. Oh, okay, fifty five. Yep. All right, Alan. So I think because the way that our description is set up for our show a lot of the people that joined initially or started listening were .NET developers okay that sounds logical so i'm going to say that most .NET developers hate command line okay and so i'm going okay. to go with the you know much ado about nothing and okay. i'm going to say that it was 60% i'm sorry did you say 60 or 160 okay 60 okay yep well, you're both wrong. Really? Wow. Apparently, .NET developers love their command line. Wow. Because n- the next big awesome was the big winner at 74%. Whoa. Wow. That's which, shocking. Which, yeah, I, I did not expect that to happen at all. Because I was more in the, like, eh. I mean, I'm like, on board if, with it. If, I like it. If there was a meh like, option, that's totally the one that I would have gone with. Really? But, well, See, I, I did vote for next big awesome uh, because I'm more curious until it comes out. I don't know if I want to be excited about it. And this is one of the things that we talked about last time was, OK, what does bash on Windows mean? Because 
everything that I love about bash is all of the other commands, and that's not bash. Those are just commands on the Unix file system. Like we mentioned tail as an example, right? Right. That's not it's not like bash it's not like bash is a protocol like TCP IP is, right? It's just a, a command shell. Yep. So Hmm. What does what does it mean to have Bash on Windows? And until I see what that means, then I can't be excited about it. Well, I did listen to another podcast. I have no idea which one it was. And one of the guys was using it like quite heavily okay. because he wanted to see what it was about. And he said it was almost like being in a Linux Linux environment. If you wanted something, it was like app get whatever and then and then you ran it. So But it's all the, but it's still all the Windows commands but in a Bash shell. Yeah, right. Probably so. And that's what I was describing is that like what excites me about it is not the Windows commands in a Bash shell. I want to be able to do things like ls and and tail because I hate that stupid get content. LS. They were using ls. Well, and- ls is already like a PowerShell one where it's, well, it's like an alias a, though. It's an alias, yeah, right? It, it's not a. It's not a a equal alias though. So right, like, PowerShell like all of the switches for LS on Linux don't apply to LS on Windows. They will now under Bash. So that that's kind uh, of my see, take, that's right? that's the thing I don't agree with. If, if anything, I would say the reason why it's, it's exciting is anybody who deals with multiple different types of OSs, at least it will bring some commonality, right? Like you'll, you'll have the same see, that's commands. that's the part I'm taking care of. I'm, Take an issue with. I, I don't agree with that. Well, we'll see. But I, Maybe. I'm actually, I would be in the 75% camp, but I'm shocked that it was that high, honestly. Yep, same. Yeah. All right. Well, fine. I'm, I'm the odd man out then in the me <laughs> class. <laughs> um, but I heard that Joe has another survey for us. Yep. And uh, I was really curious what kinds of development you guys prefer. Do you prefer doing mainly front-end type stuff? Do you prefer doing back-end servery stuff? Or do you prefer doing the whole thing full stack? Well, now, you know, you you classified back-end as servery, but, you know, according to some definitions, back-end would be database, middle would be server. Um, yeah, but, I mean, I've never seen middle-end jobs Middleware. I think middleware is being a whole different sort yeah, of thing. I agree with you, but I, I just wanted to make that distinction because, you know, for some, it's definitely, you know, when you say back end, they're thinking SQL. Yeah. So, hmm. yeah, that one's kind of tough. Maybe we should augment a little bit because there's definitely front end. People know what that is. Uh, server side or back end right. or full stack. Right. So maybe those those four options. Yeah, when I say front end, I mean you're doing JavaScript, HTML, CSS, uh, WPF. You're doing GUIs. You're doing user facing. You're pound human facing. You're, you're going to bang important everything <laughs> right? to make it work. It's like, do you like working mainly um, for with people, with other computers, or do you like a mix? Mm. Yeah, I, I know what I am, but. Our, we shouldn't give ours this one, right? We, we'll do that on the next. Oh, okay. I mean, yeah, we, we won't lead anybody. Sure. All right. All right. So Back now end. it's my turn. The repository pattern. This is not in the Gang of Four book, and this is why I'm excited about it. I think it's the first time we've we've dived into the depths of something outside that book. 
Nope. Um, there was the Hollywood pattern and the null object. Null object's not in there? Nope. Oh, I'm wrong. So I shouldn't be this excited about it, but I am anyways. <laughs> so, <laughs> All right, take it down a notch. So, Gotcha. Here we go. So the repository pattern. Uh, this one's kind of, I, I like this one because it's the whole separation of concerns with databases and, and regular code and all that. And that's where this gets into it. So let's get into the whys. Or maybe first, first yeah, we'll get into the whys. Well, let's start with a definition. So I don't think I got a definition. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Or um, not. Yeah. Sorry. So what is it, I guess, is more of the definition. So it sits between the data source and the business layer. So the data source could be a database itself. It could be something like SharePoint that can give you a list of data, whatever, wherever you're getting your data from. And then it sits in between that and the business layer. So anytime you get the data and you need to do something with it before you know you spit it out to the user or, or consume it or whatever, this is where this thing sits. It maps data from the data source to an entity. So one of the things that you'll typically see in .NET anyways is you'll see the repository pattern mentioned in line with like Entity Framework. And the reason being is because Entity Framework gives you these business entities, right? If you have a user object or something like that. It, it doesn't have to be Entity Framework. The key point is you're mapping from a class to the data. That's really what it boils down to. And the this uh, this repository pattern, it also persists changes from the entity back to the data source. So you get an entity out of a repository, you make some changes to it, then you pass it back to the repository and it knows how to save that data or persist it on. Um, there are a ton of other patterns that come into play here. Uh, one of the ones that is kind of interesting is you can use the unit of work pattern for complex multi-step operations. And what the unit of work thing is, if you think about like in a simple e-commerce application, you you basically have a bunch of or, or items that people decided they wanted to order. They place their order on the site. Well, typically what you have is you're going to create a record. If we're talking about a database, you're going to create an order record. After you create that order record, you now need to take that order ID that was generated and put all these order items on that same thing. And so that's a multi-step operation. You first create the order record, then you're going to create all the order item records. And so a unit of work allows you to do that. So if you had something that was like create order, it would know how to take that data and push it in. Um, another thing that it can use is what's called the data mapper pattern. Uh, this is basically what an entity framework or even like a dapper kind of does. So you take an ORM and it will auto map the data that came from whatever the data source was into these entities, these class objects that you have. So that's what it is. Now, what doesn't matter as much as why? So there's a couple of things that are really cool about this. So the first one is it's testable with an isolated data Ooh. layer. So what? Woo. Yeah, I mean, that's that's cool. So, uh, and what that actually means is, what? why is this testable? Why is this any different than anything else you do? So in a lot of cases, you, or in a lot of applications, you've probably seen, like, you know, the web API might be talking directly to the, to the database. You can't test that. Like, that's that's very difficult to test because you have no interfaces. You have nothing that you can, that you can substitute in and out of. With this, think of... Think of like you have a repository and it and it has an interface called iRepository. And in most of these repositories, when you see these generic repositories, you'll have you'll have 
basic CRUD type operations like create, update, delete, or get. And then you might also have find by ID, find by name. Like these might be some of the ones that are all there. Well, if you have an interface that has those things, you can swap in and out mocks of those if you want. And so those are easily testable. Um, another, another why is centrally managed access to rules and logic. So if, if you think about it in terms of if you've, and we've all done it, if you have some methods that go get an order and they do some things to an order, that's the only place that knows about it, right? And then inevitably you'll see down the road, somebody else goes and gets some things from the order and does the same type things to that order. And you're like, well, but wait a second, I already wrote that code over here. But because people weren't aware of those, those multiple classes, that logic is not centralized. When you put this kind of thing in a repository, you now have one place to go and that's all managed. Okay. So, so sorry, I got to interject for a moment. Yes. Uh, and not as a bad way, but for one, um, you mentioned something about entity framework and I wanted to make sure that you weren't suggesting that in, but the entity framework itself was a repository pattern. No, that's I actually specified that it is typically used in conjunction. If you hear okay. repository, that's what I wanted to make sure yes. that you said. Okay, so entity framework would be more the thing that talks directly to your data source. Okay, right, and then the repository would leverage entity framework to get the data across. Right, that's typically how you would do something like that. Gotcha. Um. But yeah, the centrally managed thing, that's really nice because you know that if you go to your repository and you get some things, you know that it's treated the same for everybody that gets it. And anybody that's getting data would typically point to your repository. Okay. So let's let's describe let's describe a, a visual then. Okay. So you mentioned orders mm -hmm. as an example. Yep. So if you were gonna do a, a order repository Right then, um, this is where the testability, the promoting testability, is going to come into play, because you're going to first define a repository for that order. So maybe something like I order repository. Yep. And then you'll have methods that you're going to define that'll be like, um, you know, get by order ID, get by user, uh, things like that. Right. And and all of those different methods in that interface are going to be part of that repository. Then you're going to implement the actual uh, an implementation of that interface. So you know some class order repository that implements I order repository, and yep. it'll implement each one of those methods. And so in your um, you know using your entity framework example, then in your um, get by order ID method, that's where it will be the guy that actually uses DB context to get to it. So the, the data source, which is the DB context mm -hmm. is a layer, a layer of abstraction away from, from the caller. They, they aren't directly working with DB context. Correct. They're going through the repository to Correct. get that. And so any methods like get order or create order or save order or delete order or anything like that are that order repository class is going to be the one that specifies what, you know, uh, like DB context that you're going to have to, to do. Right. And if you needed to swap out your entity framework with something else, then you're only having to touch the repository objects, assuming that all your POCOs stayed the same, yep. or POJOs if you're in Java, then then um, 
you know, you're only changing those repository classes for the actual implementation of what the the underlying data source uh, implementation is, right? Absolutely correct. Yep. And because it was all interface driven, then that's where your promoting testability comes in because you can easily mock the interface in your unit tests, Absolutely. which should really make Joe happy. Yep. I do like that. And for anybody who's, I think we've said this many times on the podcast, if you've heard Poco or Pojo, all that means is plain old Java object or plain old C sharp object. So just, just for anybody that has no idea what we're talking about. And for the historians out there, I'm pretty certain that it started Pojo first. I would think so. Right. So no Poco man, plain old C objects. Ooh. There's no such thing as a plain old C object. C plus plus object could have been. <laughs> then no. <laughs> um, it started out as a it started out as a Java term. Pojo first, and then and then the .NET world borrowed it. So no man, small talk. It was the Poso. What a Poso. Right, sorry, continue. <laughs> a Posto. <laughs> it's kind of like a Post-it. Oh. Pretty soon Pascal's going to come in, and it's the Popo. <laughs> the Popo. <laughs> the Popo's here, yo. Um, so. So going to that, like that's one of the interesting points that I do want to I do want to talk about this for a second. So one of the things that is sold about using like the repository pattern, which I think it was something that Microsoft introduced. Like I think they coined the repository pattern. Um, I know Martin Fowler talks about it, but here's the here's the thing about it: Are you really ever going to swap out Entity Framework for something else? Maybe, probably not. Right, but the thing is, you could because you have that extra layer. Um, so that's that's one thing. Now, to go in a little bit further, and uh, what's her name, Julie Lehrman, on Pluralsight, fantastic courses on Entity Framework. She even goes into like one of the things that we love about Entity Framework, and correct me if I'm wrong, is the link to SQL SQL syntax, right? Like you can basically say dot where something will write your SQL for you and go get you a bunch of entity objects back, right? That's one of the things that we love about it. One of the things that they suggest if you're doing the repository pattern is you do not allow that pass through of of queries or oh, I oh. queryables. No, no uh, direct right usage of of link of of entity because at that point you are now tightly coupling yourself to the technology that your repository is right. using behind the scenes, right? So you're not actually passing through your iQueryable objects. So just something to be aware of. It's not saying that you can't. I mean, it, yeah. and if it's something that you feel like you want to do because it adds a layer, you know, a lot of value to what you're doing, you know, fine, whatever. Everybody can choose their own path, but. Strictly speaking, it kind of uh, breaks that whole rule of having that layer of abstraction. Um, so um, one thing I'm, I'm trying to kind of think of now, if you guys will agree with this definition, if we think of a re repository as representing a collection of entities, yeah. and it lets my code deal with the repository as if it were a collection of objects rather than I rows in agree. a database, I, you don't agree? No, because the repository doesn't have to be a collection at all, but it just has to provide methods to where you might get back a collection of right? entities. It's, it's, the, it's the ability to interact by getting or setting information on entities. It's, it's like a layer of abstraction away from whatever your actual data source is, the repository patterning is, is encapsulating that so that you can, you know, your caller doesn't have to know what the actual source is. 
It so doesn't it's have translating to that, it, that into my Pocos or Pojos. Yes, and usually it's not even just a Poco. It's probably a smarter business object in many cases. So it could be a Poco or a Pojo, which literally means that it's just a dumb object that gets mapped to, right? Um, but it could be a smarter entity. It doesn't really matter. It's just the fact that it can get and set those things for you. Um, okay. So how about if I'm working with JavaScript, could I have a repository that, say, represents the DOM? Hmm. You're talking about like going a the shadow direction. DOM. That's, that's, uh, I can query it, and I want to get back objects. So the only difference would be, so if you think about it, and this kind of goes back a little bit and rewinding on what Outlaw said a minute ago. Like he said, you might have, you know, your order repository, which would be, which would have something like get order by ID and get by user. So a little correction on that. If you're truly following the, the repository pattern, you'll have something like iRepository, which would have some very generic things like get by ID, get by name, right? So then you're, then you're, Order repository, instead of having get by order ID, it would actually just override get by ID, right? And, and some of those others. Now, okay. It might have its so own. So you might have like things. a more generic interface that defi- defines things like, you know, get, create, yes. say, like all your CRUD operations. All your CRUD. Yep. Uh, for those that aren't familiar with CRUD, that would be, you know, create, read, update, delete. Yep. So then going to your DOM example, the only way that I see that would potentially work is if you truly had some sort of. Like talking about React or something where you have a shadow DOM, right? If you did something like that, then really what you'd be saying is you have like, you know, a handful of methods that are used to interact with it. Basically, getting out, getting data back from the DOM and pushing it back to it, right? So you could totally do it. I don't know how. I do do it. Huh? All the time. I do 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 it. Uh, Too much. I was just thinking with the chess game. Right, I've got dependencies on jQuery in like every file because I reached my nasty little fingers into the DOM from uh, all of my classes. Well, like, well, wondering like maybe if I had an object that represented jQuery, represented the DOM, and then I could query it by ID or by you know element type stuff like that, and I get these objects back that can do things like set value, set HTML, get value, um, these you know kind of Poco-ish or data y type things that I both read and set. And it abstracts away the saving of that to the DOM. All I know is I say, hey, get me the table and fill it in. And that kind of stuff happens on the DOM. Then it's kind of, if I abstract that out into its own layer, that could kind of be an example of the repository pattern. I think if you are using um, entities that are actually what's interacting with the DOM. So let's say, for instance, it was an order, right? If you had an order that you push the repository and then it wrote it to the DOM, or if you were trying to get things out of the DOM and convert them back into orders, then maybe that's that's something, right? Like the the real, I think the real meat behind it is you are getting business entities out of whatever data and pushing it back in. Okay, so if I'm setting the HTML, then I'm starting to speak the language of my you know repository. I'm breaking that rule there, so it, yeah. it's not a it's not a clean abstraction. Yeah, it's more about like model data to an entity and an entity back to model data. I think is really what it boils down to. Okay, interesting. So now I'm trying to figure out if I could do it with handlebars. So rather than like <laughs> setting the HTML or anything like that, I just kind of pass the data and somehow it gets mapped to a template somewhere al- along the way. I feel like you're trying to force MVVM into the repository pattern. Yeah, this is the next big thing, man. This is going to be the next big JavaScript pattern. 
Oh God! <laughs> yeah, this is going to be the next big frame up. Re- Repo.js. You just, it's, it's, it's not a big thing until you come up with a good name for it, though. That's right. Repo like repo, man. Re- repo is pretty decent. Mm. Oh, someone's already got Repo.js. All right, so let's. Uh, so going back into this, the whole. Um, where, where did I leave off here? So central. Oh, I didn't even get to this one. So another thing that's really nice is you can have a centralized caching strategy, right? If you have one place where all your data is being, you know, funneled through, you can now cache more effectively in one spot as opposed to trying to cherry pick all over your application where you feel it's necessary. Um, Another thing, it does allow you to separate your business logic from your data access logic. And by data access logic, that could be things like, is this guy authorized to even get this data, right? Or... Uh, you know, what amount of this data can come back. And that can get into domain-driven design, which is way outside the scope of this, but it's another thing that is typically talked about with repository stuff. Um, but Oh, my God. <laughs> what's that look there, Joe? Oh, man, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to distract. I, I was trying to search for, you know, repository names for JavaScript, and Google auto-corrected to suppository. <laughs> I didn't know what that was, but uh, I, I do now. And, and you looked at the images. That's oh my probably God. really bad. Um, the other thing that is a, it, which we've already hinted at is you get strongly typed entities. So whether it's a Poco or a Pojo or whether it is a smarter business object, you have strongly typed data, right? Like it's not... It's not just some data that came back out of a stored proc that you're trying to convert into strings and numbers and that kind of stuff, right? You actually have something that got mapped to a real entity that you'll be able to use. Um, You also, and this is why Entity Framework is a lot of times used in conjunction with it, you have business entity associations. So if you have an order, you also know that order details belong to an order. So you can typically navigate that graph of objects with that. Um, you can apply a domain model to simplify the business logic. Uh, I mentioned it a second ago with domain driven design. That basically means you just, you kind of think about your app and, you know, who is using this portion? Is it a customer service department? Is it an accounting department? Is it whatever? Like accounting doesn't necessarily need to see all the order detail that is assigned to an order but customer service would. So when you start thinking about apps in that in that realm, you start breaking it down a little bit different. Is it just me, Joe, or do you feel like I mean, between the three of us, right? One of us is a data guy. And mm-hmm. do you feel like this pattern like someone picked this pattern on purpose because it really fits them? Like one of us is a back-end developer. Right. One of us, some of us are full stack, but one of us is not like the others. You know what's really ironic about that? So I love data, but I spend 70 to 80% of my time on the UI. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know why, but yeah, I mean, I totally love this because. Like, I'm looking, he's like a giddy, like a little schoolgirl over here <laughs> as he's talking about this repository pattern. Yeah. But well, I I'm thinking, even, uh, go ahead. Oh, I was just thinking this is starting to sound a little graphy. Like maybe this is kind of leading into some other things you've been this, interested in lately. This might be. So the I haven't even I got told you it was like entity framework. Oh man. So <laughs> I haven't gone all the way yet. But but I'm dipping my toe in here. But here's one of the I haven't gotten to why this is really exciting to me. 
Um, the last why, real quick, is it also decouples your business entity from data storage technology, which is awesome because anytime that you're like you have your order object and it's talking to a stored proc directly that thing is bound to it and anytime you screw anything up with a stored proc you've jacked everything right well i can you can change that though what if what if what if you want to have your data to be able to be read from multiple sources so you wanted to be able to read it from like an xml file or you know um from a database so you know you might have multiple sources that it's coming from and using making it interface driven allows you to swap those out oh it's as needed i I mean it's amazing like if you think if you were to expand upon what you're saying right there if you had get order and let's say that you had an oracle database sitting over here and you had you know some sort of web api call over here that you that you wanted to basically union those two sets of data together you could easily do that with a repository, right? Well, I was thinking of an example where, you know, in based on your interface, you might have, uh, you know, something like a, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of like a good example for this. Have you ever seen those interfaces where it's like, you know, they, they, it might be like a tabbed UI in a browser interface, right? And it's like, hey, you can, you can share, give a link to an image and we'll use that. Or you could, you know, type up your message here or, you know, on this tab, or on another tab, you can use something else as the source. But like any one of those three options that you pick, and then you, you know, click the action button, and then it goes away with it. And it doesn't matter which one you picked, right? They're yeah. all going to interact the same. It's going to treat them all the same. And that's where I'm kind of thinking about it. And you know that what you get back is going to be a business object that you can use. Uh, so, but here's why I got excited. Um, is we've talked i think i used this as a tip a while back there is the what is it called i think it's the generic unit of work repository pattern it's it's an extremely short name yeah generic unit of work and repositories.coplex.com so the thing that's really cool about this is um this guy took the time to bring it all together so entity framework with the unit of work with a repository pattern you can literally have a super clean set of abstractions to where entity framework is providing your business entities. The generic unit of work pattern is used so that you can string together, um, you know, operations that need to happen one after the other. And your repository pattern is there to basically just give you the easy get this, set this, update this, delete this. And it is a super clean way to have like APIs on top of your data. Huh. I, I found a really good one because you mentioned it on. Oh, wait, you said Codeplex, though. It, so the uh, yeah, uh, it's weird. Um, I, I thought that they would have updated because I thought Codeplex went away. But it's generic unit of work in repositories.codeplex.com unless they well, relocated. I'll give, you a, I'll give you another one that's really good, too, a really good source to, to see the, some code examples in action. And that's from Code Project. And they, they have an article called Repository Pattern Done Right. And it, it it's simple enough to where you like you see it and you're like, oh, okay, I get it now. Right. And it, 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 that's the thing. If you ever actually sit down and look through this, it's not complicated. But what it gives you for the amount of effort involved is amazing. Like, it, it really is good stuff. So that's that's it, man. I beat it up. <laughs> All right. Well done. I mean, just add that link in there for us. Very nice. We, this is a very link-heavy episode, by the way, too. We have a lot down here in the resources. So I 
got the short end of the straw here. Wait, wait. You chose it before I chose mine. I did. I totally did. <laughs> and I thought that I was going to be all excited about this one. And I think this was like, there was one episode, one of the other pat- design pattern episodes that we did that I remember like Joe got all excited about uh, the pattern that he was going to be doing until he got to it. And he was upset when he had to describe it. Do you remember that, Joe? Uh, yeah. Yeah. That, that's exactly how I feel. So, so I have the mediator pattern and the best I can tell is it's crap. So, <laughs> I, I, uh, what'd you say? Oh, did I not speak loud enough? Hey, wait, wait! Before we get into this, we haven't begged yet. Oh, okay. We we need to beg. We didn't put it in here, guys. We we listed the people who had taken the time to write us reviews in iTunes and Stitcher. And seriously, if you would, if you haven't already, even if you haven't joined our Slack. You know, come join us in Slack and feel the peer pressure that you need to go leave us a review on iTunes <laughs> or Stitcher. Like, we're okay with that. We don't mind peer pressure. So, uh, seriously, though, I mean, it makes us feel good. We love seeing them, and it really does help us out, get in front of, you know, even more people. And, you know, one day it will force us to record more frequently. If we get if we reach some sort of critical mass, it's going to happen. So, um, yeah, that's it. I, all right, I'm done begging. All right, so... Um well, do you want do you want have, do you have time for a joke? Because I said that this was like crap, but and that was really I was just kidding. The mediator is not crap, but it okay. did remind me of a joke. Do you, if you have time, let's do a joke. Okay, so so I can't take credit for this joke. This one, my uh, my eleven year old came up with this one on his own. So first of all, before hearing this joke, you need to put yourself in the mindset of an eleven year old boy so that you can find this humorous. Are you ready? Let's do it. Can you do the joke? Can you do that? Already there. Yeah, I, I live there. <laughs> All right. So why did the drug dealer not wipe his butt? Why did the drug dealer? I don't know. Because the toilet paper stuck to his crack last time. <laughs> uh, that's good. <laughs> he came up with that? He came up Come with on. that all on his own. That. That's not right. I don't believe it. I'm <laughs> telling you what he told me, man. Don't don't shoot the messenger here. <laughs> that's awesome. So Very nice. we might have to mark this episode explicit now. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. All right. <laughs> it's borderline. So, okay. So here's the mediator pattern, right? First, let's start with the the uh, Wikipedia definition, which is, it, the mediator pattern defines an object that encapsulates how a set of objects interact, right? So the reason why I'm saying this one's not as fun, this one just wasn't as exciting. Like, Alan was definitely into the repository pattern. And after doing some research on this one, I just wasn't as, it wasn't as there for me. But the idea behind the mediator pattern is to promote loose coupling from the objects by not, allow, by not allowing other objects to refer to each other explicitly. So I'm going to visual, I'm going to give you a couple better visualizations later, but for now, let's just say that, you know, think of it that you have these 10 objects, but all of their communication is handled by an 11th object, right? So that 11th object knows how to talk to each of them, right? And those other 10 objects, they just do their own thing. And whenever they want to talk to one of the other ones, they, they go through the mediator. Right. So it, it promotes it prom- promotes promotes loose coupling that way. Is that the way they would pronounce it in it Canada? Promotes it. <laughs> it promotes. Yes. What's that a boot? OK. <laughs> so his name is Michael Outlaw. Right. <laughs> For, I mean, with a name like Canadian Outlaw, people... you knew I was going to be politically correct. Right. 
So, but Canadian people aren't going to get offended, so it's cool. They're all they're all chill. <laughs> they know what we're talking about. That's right. So, um, which also means that it promotes the single responsibility principle. Going back to our episode on solid, which man, what was that like? Episode five or something? Been a little three while. seven s seven. So, so it promotes the S in solid, the single responsibility principle, by allowing all of that communication to be offloaded to the mediator, right? And those other 10 classes that I mentioned, they just do their thing, right? Now, here's where it gets confusing. Because the mediator pattern is in the uh, list of behavioral patterns, much like the observer pattern that we discussed earlier, much like the facade pattern that we discussed earlier. Oh, wait, what did Joe talk about? The command pattern. So that's where, you know, this one really started to get confusing because like, okay, where are the, where are the lines here? Like, you know, based off of some of the reading that I was doing, you know, there was gray areas, especially between the observer and the facade, which are competing patterns, which interesting. You would say like, okay, well then that must mean since, um uh oh man what's the the principle there i can't think of it the since the command pattern is competing with the observer pattern then the f- mediator pattern must be com- competing with the command pattern right but at least i didn't read anything that suggested that i'm not but you know it doesn't seem that way to me and i didn't read anything to suggest that but it was interesting that they were both competing with the observer pattern right yeah, it's interesting, but yeah, so they both compete with observer, but you don't hear much about mediator versus uh, command, right? So, so then it was like, okay, well, what's the difference then? Like, what's the difference between the observer pattern and the mediator pattern? So, for one, like the mediator pattern could be implemented using the observer pattern, but the the observer pattern is used to distribute communication between. Uh, objects like an observer object and a and a subject object, right? Whereas the man, I started to even say that the community, the media, and I got lost in my own words. Like, yeah, there's it's so hard to talk about design patterns. The so, mediator pattern, like trying to describe its difference, is is challenging. So here's here's what I found, and because I was getting a little confused too. So the observer pattern. It's basically all type of event type stuff, right? So when one object changes, all the dependents are are notified, right, and updated. The difference between so that's the observer. The mediator is when something happens, the mediator knows how to go do things to the other. So it's not it's not notifying the other objects. It can go do things to those objects. So that seems to be. The, the difference is the observer notifies everything that is a dependent. The mediator knows how to do things to the other ones. It's well, not you're thinking of you're, you're kind of making the analogy of the observer then in like a pub sub type scenario, Very similar. right? Yep. And and in the the mediator ob- object would encapsulate all the communication, right? Yep. Um, but from everything that I found, there's nothing to say that you couldn't say, "Hey, tell the other guy." Right. Because and here's the here's the problem with the mediator, though, is that like if you go looking around for like good concrete code examples, they're crap. (laughs) Right. Because like one of the one of the most prevalent 
examples to describe the mediator pattern, which visu- like to, to visualize it in your head, this works as an example, but I didn't like it. It wasn't my favorite way to visualize it. And that was a chat room. Because if you thought of, you know, I'm in, I'm chatting with Alan, right? So there's me, some server and Alan, but I'm not peer to peer talking to Alan. We're going through some server, right? So in that case, the server is kind of like the mediator between he and I, I'm telling, I'm saying like, Hey, I want to send this message, right? So I type the message up and then that server then sends that message off to Alan. Now that's the old school way of chat rooms. Nowadays, you know, there are more peer to peer type solutions out there, but the reason why I say that example is crap though, again, going back to the drug dealer is that, um, you know, you wouldn't really implement a chat room like that because of all the network, you know, the sockets and, and the networking, uh, requirements there, right. That, you know, mediator wouldn't actually come into play in, in that, actual implementation but to visualize it in your head you can kind of think of it like okay i get it alan's alan is one object michael is the other object and the server is the mediator i could tell you where i've used the mediator pattern so i do a lot of extjs development and one of the things that and it's not even just extjs any kind of thing if you think in web components that maybe this this would help right in web components you almost have like a puppet master sitting up top. That's your mediator, right? If something happens down here somewhere, you need your mediator to know about it, right? That mediator isn't necessarily going to go update the 10 other things that that have something to do there. It's not going to do a pub sub type thing. But that one change down here, the mediator saw that change, and now it's going to go to one of the other objects that it knows cares about that kind of thing, right? And it's going to update that one other component. So I've definitely done that in the web world when you think of child components that you're trying to, you, you know, they shouldn't know about each other because there could be they could be spun up at any given time. And so you, you're not going to, they shouldn't know that there's five other things sitting down there. But when they do something, that mediator knows about it, and it knows, oh, I've got one of these other things I need this to is, go update. This is where it kind of gets back into this is where this is where the mediator is so confusing, because I understand where you're going with this, and this is where it's kind of like going back to your observer pub sub type scenario, right? Where it's like, oh, this thing changed. Tell everyone that wants to know about it that this thing changed. But you're not doing that, you're right? Only going directly to and, what you and know. that's not what this is doing. This right. is not what this is for, right? Right. This is like, hey. I need I need to tell him something, so you're going to do it for me because I don't want to know right. how to get to him. Right, right. So th- the best I found this one example in, in um from a site called uh, Source Making, and I loved this example of the of how to visualize the mediator pattern, and that is air traffic control. Yes, love it. All of the planes don't know, they don't talk to each other, and they don't even know how to talk to each other, but they go through their air traffic control, and they communicate with with that group, and air traffic control will then coordinate messages to other planes in the area where they need to go and what they need to do, right? Now, I did find this one example, though, that was 
a quite interesting way to think about the mediator pattern. And, but it was really weird because it's like, well, okay, the mediator pattern isn't, I don't feel like this was really where the mediator pattern comes into play, but it was using, there was a, a great answer on stack overflow about, uh, you know, comparing the mediator pattern to the observer pattern. And it had, um, one of the examples or analogies that they gave was using it to, um, um, you know, for button events. So you have some button, you click on some action and then, you know, that button doesn't know what to tell the panel to do or, you know, anything about the panel, but it just says like, Hey, you know what? I'm just going to tell the mediator to let anyone who wants to know that this just happened. Right. It was an interesting example. But, but that, that's more the pub sub type thing, right. usually with the button click. That was the, the problem that I had with so many mediator documents, though. I think you hit it with their traffic controller. Like that yep. is the perfect one, right? Like you're not going to tell every airplane that yes. something just happened. You're going to tell the one that's. I probably should have saved path. that one for last. In yeah. all fairness, but yeah, because yeah, that was totally my favorite one. But in completely, I, I did want to mention that that other example, but. Um, yeah, hey, uh, two quick things. Um, Sourcemaking.com is the site I meant to reference earlier. I, I gave credit to Do Factory. It was Sourcemaking, and they've got a book called Design Patterns Explained Simply. And yeah, that's where uh, I got my favorite example of actually over the, the kitchen. So uh, that's interesting. Uh, apparently, this is a, a book worth buying. That's that's two votes. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. I mean, they're using real-life examples that people can relate to. Yeah, that's yep. nice. And also, yeah, I wanted to, uh, to mention, uh, I was thinking of a game of poker. And one way to program that is you could have a player that knows who its next player is, and it knows, you know, if I'm the last person betting, flip the next card, but that doesn't make any sense. That would be a terrible way to lay out a poker game. A better way would be to have some sort of game object that said, hey, player, better fold. Next player, better fold. And it would keep track of who's out, who's in, and it, it would also know when the round of betting is up, and it would decide to flip the, the cards. Well, you wouldn't want that logic but I mean, to the players. It, yeah, but I mean, again, if you're trying to visualize it, though, right in a game in a game setting like that, though, all the players can see each other, so there's visual communications that are happening. Not to mention any, you know, thing that they might hear or see happen, right? And yeah, so like that visualization doesn't help, like, you know, to describe what the mediator pattern does. Yeah, all I did was muddy the waters. The uh, the ah. air traffic control, uh, I think, is the way to go. Because you, yeah. you don't want to say, hey, everybody, uh, field, our, our landing strip 11 is on fire. Don't land there. And right. have, you know, 20 planes all trying to, like, you know, coordinate amongst themselves to figure out who's going to land where. Or even better, you don't want, like, one plane to say, like, hey, let me tell these other 100 planes in the area, I'm really low on fuel. I need to land now. No, instead, they just tell air traffic control... And air traffic control will take care of the queuing. Yep. So right? it's plane one to move over here, plane two to move over here. It's not a pub sub. It's literally the mediator knows exactly what needs to happen with each one of the other elements. But, but, and this is where that, that button example came up from, though, because I was trying to find, like, well, you know, some real world uses of the mediator pattern, right? Like, what's an example that, you know, a daily example that we already use in, you know, insert language here, and you know I was coming up short. 
Yeah, like I said, I definitely do it on the UI all the time. I don't know if you do. I definitely do. I mean, <laughs> the way you described so it. It's, no, literally, you have a puppet master. You have something down here that did something. The puppet master sees that that happened, and then it knows it needs to go do something to something else. It's not publishing that event anywhere. It says, okay, somebody just saved something over here. I need I to really go update I really feel like you're describing weird. Observer. No, not I at all. I really feel like you're describing Observer. Observer is a pub sub. It publishes out to everything that it has dependencies on. That's not what I'm talking about. You have a form. On, let's let's just make it real simple. You have a form on the left. Well, you you're have a still grid on the you're right. still no 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 here. Okay okay, I know how to describe where I take issue with what you're saying. Is in your you're saying um, in your words the puppet master right? So the puppet master has the logic and everything of knowing like it's making decisions. And what yes. I'm saying is the mediator doesn't have that logic. The mediator is just a communication device. There's no logic about it. The mediator is just saying, hey, this object wanted to communicate something to there. And that's where like the chat room example is also a nice way to visualize it, even though you wouldn't use this pattern. But, you know, the server doesn't care. You know, it's just saying, hey, Michael wanted to tell Alan something. Alan wanted to tell Michael something. And so it's just it's just letting that communication go back f- back and forth. It's not making decisions on, hey, Michael just sent out a message. Let me see. What was the content of that message? Okay, well, based off of that, let me make a decision that I need to tell blah, 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 blah. But the definition from Do Factory even says, Mediator promotes loose coupling by keeping objects from referring to each other explicitly. We've covered that. And it lets you vary their interaction independently. That's not sending a message. That's telling it what it wants it to do. That's the puppet master. That's I'm pulling um, your string this way because that's what I need it to do. I mean, that's what it sounds like to me. Right? I mean, and it lets you vary their interaction independently. It knows how it needs to interact with the different objects so the, the other child objects don't don't know about each other and don't know how to interact with each other. So, I mean, that and the, the air traffic controller is a perfect example. It's not a pub sub. You're not saying, hey, one airplane called in to me. Hey, hey this, you're not just going to go call out airplane C and say, hey, this dude called in to me. You're going to say, hey, airplane A called in, said it's low on gas. I need to tell airplane C that it needs to get out of the way so that airplane A can land. You see what I'm saying? Like, it knows what to do with those items. But it's still... That that's yeah, the perfect example. Taking, uh, yeah, but I still take issue with your puppet master uh, scenario, though. I, like I don't, I just it's it the same thing. It doesn't feel no because the in your puppet master scenario that you were describing, you were that that puppet master as you just as you called it was making decisions. It had logic, right? That's and, what the air and, traffic controller is. Airplane A is low on gas, calls into the mediator. Mediator says, Airplane C, get out of the way because I need Airplane A to land. That That's making decisions. That's not, hey, I got a message. Let me, let me blast out just that I got a message, right? It's, hey, I need Airplane C for you to move because I need Airplane A to go land. Right. Like, so it's making decisions. It's, it's not just a, if it's observer, it's literally a pub sub, right? This button was clicked. Let everybody know that this button was clicked. I mean, yeah, I, I, I know where I hear you. I, I, I do. So I don't know how it would be any different than observer if that wasn't the case. Well, I've yet to see a, a real pattern perfectly match the description. 
So like every single pattern I looked at, every single example of command, each of them was a little, you know, iffy on the implementation compared to the textbook definition. So I would say the master puppet thing is, it's pretty close. It's not 100% there, but I I think uh, I'm going to have to go go with Alan on this one. Sorry, Outlaw. Yeah. All right. I just don't know how it would differentiate itself otherwise, because it truly would just be a pub sub, except it'd be a pub sub saying that I'm only going to publish to this object. because okay so so the client classes use the mediator right in the pu- in the in the scenario that you described you were saying that the puppet master saw that something changed and then was making decisions on what to say right so he observed that something changed he noticed that something changed and then he was making a decision to do something that's not a mediator a mediator the client classes use the mediator to send a message to the other client now, so the puppets would have to send messages back up the string, right? Well, um, okay. I where mean, was that defined, though? That's in the definition. Where? Um, what, what, on Wikipedia. I, I can read you the Wikipedia definition. That thing is unreadable. But the, <laughs> that, that sentence is nonsensical. But it's it's the the you know the definition from Wikipedia is that client classes, and this is actually taken from the Gang of Four, if I recall. The client classes can use the mediator to send messages to other clients. Now, here's the part where it gets confusing because they can receive messages from other clients via an event on the mediator, right? But that event could just be something as simple as, hey, I want you to tell Alan something for me. Mm. Yeah, I know, man. That's the problem is if you go look for things on the mediator, like it's too similar to facade and observer and the waters get really muddy quick. Yeah. Right. And that's where that's where like you're I hear you on your puppet master example. Right. And I'm not saying that it's not a bad example of something. I'm just not entirely on board with it being an example of mediator. It's actually a different definition than I found in other places. And I guess that's what really kind of screws things up. So. Right. Uh, yeah. I don't yeah. Know. So, so now you see why I'm not ex- as excited about mediator now that I got into it and started, you know, digging into it. I was like, ah, I picked up bad one so would you say that it's a less flexible but smarter observer um well okay so one of the things that i did read oh where was this quote um because there was a great quote that i read and i think it was from source making where they had said um that it was easier to make i can't find the exact quote but it was something along the lines of it was easier to make reusable observers and than it was mediator. Okay, here it was. We found it easier to make reusable observers and subjects than to make reusable mediators. And that was and you know, I think what they're getting at there is because the mediators have you know, you've taken all of that logic about how to talk to from one object to another, right? You've taken all that away and put it into the mediator. Now the mediators kind of got this tight coupling between these objects yeah. and that's what makes it difficult to reuse. And that's where by the way, where its similarity to the facade pattern kind of comes in, right? Because if you remember what the facade pattern did is, you know, you took one, um, like, object or API and and you hid it behind some other, um, you know, interface. So, like, when we talked about the facade pattern before, we talked about, like, you know, what it might take to play an MP3, for example, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, in your facade pattern, you know, or interface, you might just have something like a play... Uh, method right but really in the implementation of your play method you're doing things like opening the file stream and 
you know, opening the, the you know the audio device and all of those things, and and you're using the API uh, for that that you're abstracting, right? And and you're simplifying it with your facade, right? And that's where the mediator acts as a facade because my communication to Alan might be, you know, the API to him it might be different, different and difficult, and so instead of having to like know specifically all of the uh, all of that API, it's just like Hey, you know, one method to say tell Alan this, right? But then that takes yeah. out the whole thing of notifying another client or child, right? Not child, not child, because these ch- these aren't children objects. These are these are objects or that could be peers, objects. right? They're they're right. you know equal level, some sort of dependency. But, yeah, but but um, you know how to talk to the Alan object might be different than the Michael object might be different than the Joe object, right? If I can turn this all into objects. <laughs> yeah, and interesting, too. I'm thinking, like, one one difference, too, is uh, or one way to ex- kind of exemplify the difference is that you can have an observer library, right? You can have an, a generic observer that allows for publishing and, and um, subs- subscription desubscribing. And I'm sure there's already, like, observer.js. But you would never have a <laughs> mediator.js because it needs to know specific things. It needs those rules and that logic to be useful. Right. Yeah, and that's why it's less reusable. Same with the facade; you'd never see a generic facade, you know, that because right. it just doesn't make sense. Right. The interesting thing is, after this gets published, we're going to get like ten comments saying, "I know exactly you know where this is used." <laughs> I am fully prepared to be told why I'm wrong, and I would love to hear some uses of the mediator pattern that are like real world, out there in the wild examples that we use every day and didn't even realize we were using. I I want to know that because you know why that would only help to solidify my understanding of the mediator pattern. But you say that, but uh, I got schooled pretty hard on the memento thing, and uh, and now look at yeah, how actually, well that you was know pretty it. Cool. See? Yeah, I, I definitely uh, I have more of a fondness now for the mediator than when I hated on it before. Yeah, I see, agree. or sorry, not mediator memento. So, so memento. talk to me in twelve episodes. Memento, yes, and <laughs> yeah. and then maybe I'll like the pimento cheese pattern. Right on. Very nice. And oh, by the way, uh, I did buy that book while we were sitting here talking. Nice. And uh, it actually it um, has the the object pattern and also the template um, method vector that we ch- were, which were the two patterns that we had kind of uh, deviated on from the Ganga Four book. So nice. very interesting. So we'll have yeah. to include a, a link to that. Um, it is only nineteen ninety five on not their terrible. special yeah. order. Their special yeah, offer. Yeah, for, for ebook. And uh, what, uh, my favorite part is it is 119 pages, including the appendix. That's not bad. Wow, the design patterns book is pushing 400. <laughs> yeah, man. So it's bite Not size. saying shorter is better, but shorter is better. Right. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, now it is time for our tips of the. Week. week. <laughs> Our definition of week varies greatly for most. All right. And this is why we need a mediator pattern, Alan, <laughs> so that you and I can communicate. <laughs> That's right. Uh, all right. So I've actually got two only because I somewhat like cheated and didn't. Oh, really man. You're up. the one that told me not to put two in this week. Yeah. And then put, you went and cheated. You can put mm-hmm. two in, but mine are kind of like fluff. Um, so, because I couldn't think of a tip of the day because I haven't coded in like four days, uh, my tip of the day is a site called jstips.co. <laughs> so, they give you a tip of the day for JavaScript every single day. So, that's giving back right there. Um, 
And it looked like it had some pretty cool stuff. Is in one there. of them to name your iffy? Uh, I don't believe it was there, but maybe they should add that one. Boom! It should be. All right, and then for the bonus. So one of my friends told me about this app called Geek oh on, my God. on Android and iOS. And there's a lot of people who have joined our Slack, and they come into the Gear channel, which is a fantastic channel. If you ever just want to oh throw God. away your money, come into the Gear yes. channel. And there are... There we are, will find ways for there, you to spend money. There are thousands of ways to spend thousands of dollars in that channel. But if you want to be a little bit more budget-friendly, you can get this Geek app and buy just tons of things for dirt cheap. Now, have you gotten anything from it yet? Not yet. I just downloaded it last night, and oh, I was okay. overwhelmed by the amount of stuff that I could get for uh, dirt cheap. Okay. Now, disclaimer here, because when he says that things are cheap, I mean, we're talking about, like, everything's a dollar or two dollars. I'm kind of curious, like, the when quality. you do order something, yeah, I want to see the quality of it. So, let's, you know, full disclaimer here, you haven't received anything yet, so it could just be junk. But let's be honest, if you spend $2 on something and it breaks, you're like, ah. You, you might not be incredibly bucks. upset about right. it, but. Dude, like, there's this, uh, I can't even think what these call, these are called right now, but, oh, a digital multimeter. How much is this thing? Let me, let me look at it. It is it is a multimeter is for two dollars. Uh, hold on, I'm looking to see how much it is. I can't. This find can't that. be a good multimeter. How do I buy it? Oh, here. Oh, would you? <laughs> it's twelve bucks, and you would trust this multimeter. Good. It's All a right. pretty decent looking multimeter. I gotta say, like it's, it's. Well, actually, yeah, that looks about the same as like a multimeter you might find at one of your box for stores for thirty bucks, right? So no, I don't think that that one's that expensive. Uh, they wouldn't a store. This one, yeah, right. Stores, who's who goes to those things? Yeah. So yeah, I mean, like it's got all kinds of stuff, man. Okay, so I've definitely seen this laptop stand on Amazon for thirty five dollars. It's eighteen bucks here. So I'll tell you that multimeter you just showed me, it is eight dollars on Amazon right now. Oh, boo! Okay, so so you're getting ripped off on and, some of uh, things. Yeah, nine dollars at <laughs> one of your box stores, maybe. All right, they have so, a six twenty-five. I add them. I don't know. Apparently, multimeters are really cheap. Wow, that's that's yeah. So I was saying, like that one, that one in particular. Yeah. So at any rate, there might be some good stuff in here for dirt cheap. There might not. I don't know. I haven't bought anything yet. And quality is to be determined. I, so yes, I have no idea. Do on not shoot things. the messenger if you got something and it was horrible. That is correct. There is a Batman light for your PS4 controller. Come on. Now that that's yep. pretty cool. Let me see that picture. Hold on, I got that. That's pretty awesome. Got a sick right. So yeah, I mean there might even be some fun stuff in there. That, but that yeah. is nice. Whatever you know, download. You know, it. speaking of Batman, that was you've seen Batman v Superman. I have not. I feel like it's safe to talk about. It's been a little while. We might save it. It hasn't been long enough. I don't really? Think. Yeah. I don't. I don't know if we can. I. Uh, well, it's a movie, so it's like you know neither one's going to die. Neither one's going to really lose. Wait, is is it out in stores yet? That's the question. No. Um, if it's not out in stores, we can't really talk it. about it. Like, Deadpool, I feel like it's safe at this point. Hey, I haven't seen it, so I don't want it spoiled. All right. You haven't seen Batman v Superman? No. I heard it was terrible. <laughs> right. There you <laughs> go. <laughs> yeah. There you go. So I, I figured I would just wait like 10 years and Netflix it. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. That was the sad thing. I so badly wanted like that more than I did. Yeah, that's hilarious. And and you show me that Batman thing. That, that was the whole thing that brought this up because then that made me think of um, um, the Suicide Squad. 
that's oh, coming yeah. out. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, man. That's going to be awesome. Maybe. What? All right. <laughs> Tough crowd. <laughs> uh, my tip of the week. Uh, t- oh, yeah. Mine's, mine was really lame. I couldn't think of one. But then I bought this design patterns book and started reading it like 10 minutes ago. <laughs> so I kind of want to do that. Design patterns explained simply. So um, we will have a link for that. We'll have uh, at least one link for that in the show notes. Wait, man. That's your tip of the times. week? The, the book that you just bought on air? That's fantastic. <laughs> That's yeah, I mean, I read like the first two pages while you guys were talking about Batman versus Superman. Oh, that's, my that's God. just in Super time good. right there. That's up to the minute accuracy. <laughs> wow. That's right. <laughs> All right. Fresh. Uh, but no, my, the tip that I had written down, uh, which is also a bit of a cop out, uh, was to learn a new programming language. Uh, start your brain, learn new concepts. And my favorite part is you get to see old concepts in a new light sometimes. Um, and as I like to say, Everyone should know a scripting, compiled, functional language. Um, so uh, if you are stronger in one of those areas, you should pick one of the other ones. And one way that I like to learn new languages, aside from things like um, Code Wars or Project Euler, is programming Conway's Game of Life, which is also a tip in its own right. If you've never programmed it before, it's a really neat one to do because it just looks cool. And there's a few gotchas in there. All right. So, I guess I'm going to get into the the nitty gritty of the um, tips of the week here. Um, Joe, you might like this one. <clears throat> so, have you ever found yourself? Um, okay, first off, let's talk about in unit and parameterized test. Right now, if you're not familiar with parameterized unit tests, what I mean is that you create one method. And the method signature takes in some variables and you your code just runs through all of those, um, you know, uses those variables to make some assertions. And you might have a, you know, the method decorated with some test case attributes and those test cases will then pass in all the different, um, oper- you know, uh, different parameter. So let's say you have, for example, a add method, you know, add test that you're doing and it takes in two numbers, right? And you just want to be able to like do some add operation on those two numbers and, you know, assert some result, right? And so in your test case, you might have like one and two and two and three and three and four, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, now, Joe, have you ever found yourself wanting to include in your test case attribute an object? Attribute an object? Right. What does that mean? So, so when you do a test case in in unit, and you know, in the example that I gave with one and two, uh, those those numbers are constants, so they're not going to change, right? With a test case attribute on your your unit test declaration, you can only have constant values, right? So constant string values or numeric values, you know, but it has to be a constant, right? In the case of an object, though, that's never going to be constant because something has to new it up, right, in order for it to have some value, right? right. So it's never going to be constant. So you can't say something like test case and then um, 
let's see what would be a good example of a object that you might want to uh, run a test on. Um, well, nothing's coming to mind here. Um, not an array. Let's say if you wanted to, ah, I can't, I can't think of an example, but you, if there's some object that you wanted to be able to pass into your, um, test as one of the parameters, right? And you wanted that object to vary based on the test case, right? Like yep. maybe, maybe it's another object in your framework. So maybe you want, you know, whatever your method is that you're testing, maybe you want to be able to supply another one of the objects in your library to it as part of the test. But for each test case, you want to have a different version of that object to represent a different state, right? Well, with the uh, test case source attribute in NUnit, you can do that. Right. So what you can do is you can have your your uh, test method. Right. And then specify test case source. So you'll have test and then uh, as the attribute and then comma test case source. And then in parentheses, you'll have a string that represents the name of the source. Right. And that source could be either a parameter or uh, I'm sorry, not a parameter, uh, a property or a method, um, or some uh, instance or static member or field, right? But what it returns back is an ienumerable or a type that implements ienumerable, right? And then you could have that, let's say you had a method that returned back some array of objects, right? You know, inside of that method, you could have your logic to create all the different versions of the object that you want to test or, you know, that you want to be passed into your test method, right? Okay. So it allows you to have parameterized tests, but with... Um, with objects. Yeah, with, with objects. And I feel like I'm doing a horrible job of trying to explain this thing. <laughs> no, I think I know what you're saying. Like, I've done parameterized objects be- or parameterized tests before, and I end up passing, like, multiple arguments here, um, like 12, comma 3, comma 4, that all get passed into my function. Wouldn't it be great if I could actually just create, uh, um, you know, my object right there and pass it in that way? It's so much more easy to read, and then I don't have to do a bunch of, you know, weird tweaking to figure out what's going on. Yeah, it, it's, it's, like, if you like to unit test, this one's going to be a fun one for you. Um. And since everyone else got to give out two, <laughs> I feel like I should too. Um, but it's not going to be a fluff one, but maybe a little bit lighter one. Have you ever, maybe maybe it's just me, and I know Alan's going to look at me like I'm crazy when I say this. Have you ever wanted to delete or forget about wire, some wireless network that you've connected to? Oh, I do it. You do? Yeah. On, on um, well, this, this one's specific to like a Windows 8.1 environment or you know eight ish environment i don't know if i've so, done it on that but i definitely do it on like my mobile devices and that kind of stuff so okay so i'm not alone in this then is where we're going because i'm pretty particular like you know once i connect to some uh you know wireless network once i no longer need it i don't like it to exist in my you know always connect to or connect to automatically kind of network list because you know who knows i might go somewhere else where someone else has the same name you know, 
And and even though the passwords may change, let's say if it was like, you know, a free Wi-Fi, right? I don't want to connect to it unless I mean to connect to it because, you know, I want to, I like to be aware of that kind of thing when I, when I'm like traveling out and about and make connections to networks and whatnot. Um, I don't know my own personal security, uh, mindset, I guess. So here's what you can do on the command line, type in net sh space wlan space show space profiles this will this will show you an iteration of all of your uh the wi-fi networks that you know about at the time right if you already know the one that you wanted to get rid of you can type in net sh space wlan space delete space profile space name equal and then in parentheses the name of the Wi-Fi. So, for example, if it, if you fly Delta and you connect to the GoGo in-flight uh, thing, then you would type in Nets SH space WLAN space delete space profile space name equal in parentheses GoGo in-flight, and it'll delete it. So, if you like me, want to keep your uh, your remembered Wi-Fi networks uh, in check, then that's how you can do it. All right, how about a whitelist? And then you could uh, write a little script that will list all your Wi-Fi and then remove them all except for the ones that you've specified. I like that. If I wasn't so lazy, I would write it. <laughs> uh, hey, with Xamarin, you could do it now for everything. I don't for know everything. how easy that would be. but Yeah, I, I would just bash it, man. <laughs> oh, my gosh. No, you bash need, runs everywhere. You need an app for that, man. People want yeah. apps. <laughs> That's actually yeah. That would be an interesting app. I'm I'm gonna write that out. It wouldn't be horribly difficult. I don't think. I'm gonna write an Electron app to do that. <laughs> Why not Xamarin? Um, because I love JavaScript so much. <laughs> You're gonna force yourself to learn it. I really yeah. want to do something with Xamarin. I just I don't I I don't have a burning idea in my mind that I just want to take off and try and do. You know, so. I don't know. I feel you. All right. Well, that wraps up episode 42, right? Uh, that, that Did we hit the bottom of our tips of the week? We did. Yep. All right. So, uh, with that, we didn't put all our jargon at the bottoms. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. Sure. No, we did. Did we? Yeah. yeah, so, yeah so, so, the deal here is uh, we're trying out a new show notes format that will wow. help us uh, expedite, expedite things a little bit. So, things look a little different for us. And that's why uh, there may have been some clumsy transitions like this one that I have super underscored and highlighted. I mean, definitely not on my part, though. So, <laughs> I mean, if we're being honest. It, see, in all fairness, it kind of skipped a page, and that's why I didn't see it. Oh. Ah. Yes. So, uh, definitely uh, go leave us a review at www.codingblocks.net slash review. Yep, and uh, be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. And be sure to give us, uh, well, you already said to be give us reviews on iTunes or Stitcher, but as Alan said, you can find the links easily to that at codingblocks.net slash review. Yep, and bring any questions or topics on over to Slack. I think we're going to go ahead and create us a topics channel in there. And you can sign up if you haven't already by going to codingblocks.net slash Slack. 
and visit www.codingblocks.net where you can find all our very extremely detailed show notes, examples, discussions, and more. And follow us on Twitter where we are almost up to 1,000 followers. Oh, that's amazing. Makes me feel real good. So that's at Coding Blocks. Yes. And with that, thank you. Nice. Yep. And uh, you'll be hearing from us not so soon. I guess maybe soon. Uh, it depends on when we record the next episode. You know, it's we got it. It's the tip of the week, so <laughs> yep. it'll be the episode of the week. It'll be the episode of the week that you hear it that it releases. Yes, you yeah. know it. Yeah. What else can I say? <laughs> yeah, this probably has been the episode that we've heard the most about being late on. Like it actually came up. It's like again today. It's it's been at least once a day where someone's like, "Hey, uh." You guys still doing this? Late. Well, Relative. the problem was is we were walking around San Francisco getting our sunburn oh, yeah. on. And you know, I, I think, dude, on my Fit application, I think we walked like 17 miles in two days. I don't doubt it. It was amazing. Yep. Are we still recording? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Well, uh, one of our coworkers <laughs> uh, just walked 45,000 steps in one day. So... I was, yeah, griping about, like, you know, we broke 20 uh, one day in San Francisco. I was like, ah, oh, my feet. And then just a few days later, he goes and breaks 45. 45,000? Yep. Dude, we did close to 30 one day, and my feet were complaining. I know. Wow, that's that's impressive. All right. All right, yeah. so that's it. Bye. <laughs>